I could speak for Dan and I who share a pretty wealth of a pretty massive collection of cassette tapes, but they're not every single cassette tape, you know, and some of those early cassette tapes like really weren't created to be visually presented. You know, they might've come into like a line cassette tape and it might say, you know, Funkmaster Flex, September 2nd, 1994 on the spine. And it's not really kind of something visually pleasing or has a cover. So it was equal balance of making sure the ones that represented the history and the culture, and then those that also had were visually appealing. First, First I say, say, what, what we gonna, gonna do? Then you, you say, say, I don't know, what do you wanna do? What we gonna do, what you wanna do? I have an idea. You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> What's going on and welcome to the program. This week, we're joined for a wide-ranging conversation with Daniel Eisenberg and Evan Orbach, authors of the amazing Do Remember, the golden era of NYC hip-hop mixtapes. Enjoy the conversation. Entering the mode of the notorious Biggie Smalls, Junior Mafia Clint, representing. This one going out to Brooklyn. Y'all know what time it is. It's going out to all the gangsters, all the pimps and players, hoes and bitches. Y'all know what time it is. So this is what I want y'all to do. I want y'all to grab y'all Dutch masters and y'all white ass and y'all fillies. Mm. Get you a fat sack, a pint of Hennessy, and lay back. I'm gonna do this one for my man, Mr. C, represent all day, every day. And all you other tape niggas and bootleggers, stay in the house, cause Brooklyn got this shit locked down. What was it you learned as students narratively putting together this book that, I guess, remixed and changed the way you both think about the history of mixtape culture? I mean, I think as like a kid or just like a fan that was listening to mixtapes and really think about like the lineage of it all and like this the story of the evolution of the mixtape um and i think that's something that we really tasked ourselves with trying to uncover as we made this book um you know just like chronologically like how did it all come together and then evolve over time um, and that's kind of the way that the book was set up. I mean, I could think back to like when we were first starting to put together the structure for the book and outlining it, how initially it was going to be a little more of just like a a fun hodgepodge of different interviews and lists and things like that. And I think we had a moment pretty early on where we said, no, let's really tell the story of the history of this thing the right way and start at the beginning and watch as it evolved like through the that like quote golden era you know into the 90s and early 2000s 
Um, so I don't think before doing the book, I'd really thought about it, like zoomed out and seen the big picture. It was more just something that was a part of my life as a hip hop fan and someone growing up in New York. Um, but I think with the book, you know, we, we really set out to, to do that, to really tell the story and the chronological history of it all. What about your story together? What's your personal histories with mixtapes respectively? Where do they fit into your story as obsessives? And is there a tape that you recall either skill-based or purely musical that pushed away you collect mixtapes? Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in. So I, I was a little bit what I call geographically challenged growing up. I lived and grew up maybe about 90 miles out of New York City. So didn't have that kind of direct hand-to-hand -hand access uh, and as a kid, you know, with limited limited resources in terms of funding and the price of cassette tapes or the price of CDs, you know, a mixtape just economically made the most sense to get the most out of my dollar. I mean, it's not anything more besides like I'd rather go spend twenty dollars and get two mixtapes and hear forty different songs from forty different artists than go and drop that money on on cassettes or CDs. So. Um, you know, early on, uh, in addition to retail, which obviously was important to me, you know, that was my music discovery. That was my uh, rap caviar. That was my playlist. That was my curative source of learning about what's hot because mm. I knew that the mixtape was a gatekeeper of source and what they put on their tapes was deemed to be fire. Um, so I got into that. And in terms of kind of specifics, like, I guess I due to that nature, I was always attracted to those tapes that were chock full of new music. You know, I don't think that I was really mu had much taste in in blends or, you know, the cutting and the scratching of it. But I just wanted to hear new joints because that was my experience with like how I discovered tunes. Yeah, I mean, I think Evan and I were similar in that way. Like my entry point into mixtapes was really based around them being, you know, these tapes that had songs that you couldn't get on albums or that weren't on the radio yet, or that weren't ever going to be anywhere yet, whether it was a freestyle or something like that. And like, that was like my first introduction to them. I had a friend who used to hang out with like some older kids and they used to go to the city all the time. And he kind of came back with probably like an SNS tape or a DJ rhythm, you know, guys uptown in Harlem right. and the Bronx that were making tapes um, and, you know, put me on and, I think SNS was like an early favorite of mine. And again, it was because he had everything new. That's something we even explore in the book with him. Like he kind of lists out some of his, the big ex exclusives that he had, you know, over the years and tells the story behind how he got them or the impact they made when they, they hit the tape. Um, so that was always like what I was attracted to. Um, you know, early SNS tapes were big for me and early clue tapes were big for me. Um, and uh, I think a couple other standouts, probably like the Tony Touch 50 MC series and the Duop 95 Live 1 and 2, those were like all really important to me. Uh, but yeah, I always kind of always kind of aired on the side of the exclusives and, and the new music. That was like my biggest attraction to it all. We're talking about a time when going to these stores to buy these mixtapes was an adventure within itself, wasn't it? Where were you buying your tapes during those glory years? Where were you buying them at? Me, I had spots. I was mostly like in the Bronx and like the Fordham Road area. Um, you know, by the time I discovered mixtapes, either, well, initially, I think I had a couple of friends that were a little older and had driver's licenses, so they would drive. And there were just like a couple spots that we knew of. There was a, there was a record store right on Fordham Road that you kind of went downstairs into and they had, you know, they had retail stuff like you could get 12 inches and things like that and albums. 
Uh, but then they had the huge glass cases with the binders out and they sold all the tapes in there. So that was kind of a good one-stop shop because by the time I was 16, I, I used to buy vinyl and stuff too. I had turntables. Um, so I used to go there and get it all. Um, but then there was these like little hole in the wall places on Fordham. Fordham ha would have like these little, almost like malls, not like a strip mall, but almost like you'd walk in like the main door and you'd walk down a hallway and there'd be like kind of like these little businesses and kiosks set up within like one one building um and there would just be like these little stands you know and you'd get them for five bucks or three for ten or whatever it was so i would go to those and then uptown flavor was another one that was big for me there was a, there was one on um, southern boulevard and um, there was one on grand concourse i used to go to both of those a lot and again real hole in the walls maybe a couple t-shirts on the wall glass cases you go in, they're blasting whatever the newest thing is on the speakers and running it back and trying to sell that and put you on to what's new. So, yeah, I was really mostly in the Bronx. And later on in the CD era, I would go to this place, Scheme. Uh, this dude, Ali, was great. Uh, he, he had like a, a mixtape stand in the front of this clothing store called Scheme on 125th Street. That was like a big spot for us once kind of the CD era hit. Um, but yeah, those are, those are probably my, my biggest spots. I've been to the beat streets and all that stuff too. We used to make little pilgrimages around and find some places, but for convenience wise, as someone who grew up in White Plains, the Bronx was like a quick 15 minute drive. And that's where we would go like more on like a weekly basis. Yeah. Well, again, you know, speaking to my point earlier, I, I grew up 90 miles North of New York city, which is also equidistant 90 miles south of Albany, New York, which is the capital. Um, so I kind of spent time in both areas. You know, there were some places around uh, my general area that were beeper stores or, you know, clothing stores or barber shops that would have them, nothing of note. Um, and then there were spots up in Albany. Uh, one of the guys actually who contributed pretty heavily to a book um, had a spot called G-Spot up in Albany uh, on Lark Street that I used to frequent and go to. And then I started to realize that there was a little bit of time, time lapse between when stores in New York City would get them and when they would make their way upstate New York and started to gravitate more south to New York City. Um, and there were places like, I don't know, there were, got, there, there were names. They really weren't stores. There was D on Canal. There was Amadou on 14th Street. There was just these places that seemed unconventional. And, you know, my mixtape acquisition was more of function than form. So at the time, like a bootleg didn't mean anything to me. It was still a cassette. It still played. I didn't kind of really seek out masters or needed to be authenticated by the DJ. It was more functional than just getting the music than it was about purchasing. Like I was a consumer, you know, I, I, I and again, probably up until we did the book, there really isn't this like deep dive that talks about mixtapes in that way to even know that you were buying it from somebody who didn't naturally create it themselves. They made a re re recreation of it all. So um, the spots downtown and then Fat Beats too. Fat Beats around the corner too um, was House of Nubian. Those were spots that I definitely remember because Soho was kind of like your back to school shopping place in my, you know, growing up. If you were lucky enough, some of these parents were going down to New York City and they drop you off in Soho and you could run a muck a couple of hours. And, you know, um, it's really kind of tightly wound to um, the flyer book, which you, which you, which was mentioned a little bit earlier in the sense that that was also my kind of way of information gathering. You go into these spots, I grab up all the flyers. It's how I learned about who was performing, who to look out for, what the spots were. Um, and most of those places always had one or the other. You know, they either had tapes and records and flyers or they had flyers and records. So um, for me, it was about consumption, um, consumption of ephemera, consumption of music, 
less about making sure I went to the spots that had like the authentic cassettes. Was Kim's video ever a spot for you guys to frequent? Nah, you know, the St. Mark's area, you know, again, if I'm dropping a, a little bit of a pin on a time frame, you know, I, if I'm talking when I was 14 or 15 years old, it's like early 90s. Uh, I probably wasn't really too keen on walking down St. Mark's Street at that time of my life. Uh, I knew of it. I probably knew of it later in life than I did at the time. Um, and by then, I feel like we were way further progressed out of the cassette era into the CD era. Um, and there are way more available places to kind of get the CDs than there were the cassettes. So, Got it. Let's talk about DJ Hollywood, whose influence you talk about in this book, from how he ushers in the start of this technological change between eight tracks to cassettes to permeating a DJ as a personality, as it were, back then. Why do you think that DJ Hollywood gets left out with the story as often as he does when it comes to the transformation of not just mixtapes, but also what would eventually become rap? Hollywood was a great get for the book. I would just say, first of all, shout to our friend Barr, who kind of connected us with him. Um, you know, he, he plays kind of an interesting role in hip hop in general as being like a guy who probably isn't mentioned enough for just being the first person, like almost like rapping over instrumentals or having like the two turntables and a mic set up. Like he's just like, part of that early formation of the essence of like the this hip-hop setup um you know he was great because he really painted the picture of those like early 80s years even like going from like the eight track into the cassette and showing like the emergence of the cassette and how like just that technology changed things how people would just have cassette players in their car and that was like a huge way to you know spread music if you were a dj that was making tapes or recordings um you know i didn't know much about him to be honest i'd always heard his name um uh, but until i spoke to him i really didn't know his story and um you know that was one of the more interesting parts for us doing this book was like some of that stuff that preceded our entrance into mixtapes as guys who were in high school in the early 90s and mid 90s that you know maybe were too young or weren't living in the city during the 80s when some of these things were happening you know obviously we were kids and we grew up through the 80s and you know breaking to electric boogaloo and all these different things like we were being exposed to um you know run dmc and all that stuff but we maybe weren't like in the streets where like dj hollywood was doing clubs or passing around tapes like we just missed that so it was like a a big chunk of the history that we learned from from doing it and hollywood was like one of those guys that honestly i didn't really know that much about i'd always heard his name but he's super important and and i think if you open the pages and do remember and you read his interview right off the bat you'll you'll see why you know again he's just like one of those early guys that was talking on the mic rapping over beats uh, making tapes like in the era even just when the cassette was emerging and one of the forefathers of it all that all these guys that came after him always showed love to. Um, so yeah, super important figure. And I'm glad that we got uh, him to tell his story um, at the beginning of the book. And Hollywood, like some of the other guys in the book, and I think there's a commonality when we spoke to these DJs, entertainers, specifically around mixtapes, like the mixtapes were not, how do I say it? They were not the, 
means to an end, meaning they weren't doing them to make money off them. They were an ends to a mean. And I hope I'm saying that the right way was like the mixtapes were essentially like a showcase for them to further their opportunities. They made these tapes so they could pass it along. They could get a club gig. They would make these tapes so they could get enough, you know, together to go on tour with somebody. And I think for Hollywood, that ascension happened so fast for him that most of his career was spent away from the mixtape game and more into the club game and more into the entertainer game than it was where others kind of thrived and maintained their space in that because the economy of the tapes had shifted. It's all about timing, right? Like I, and, and I'm glad that you bring up this notion of the subtext of the book, which is that really technology was the thing that has driven the format to change time after time after time drop the needle on the A track to the cassette, right? And then the cassette player is out and it's the heavy duty boom box that people are holding up on their shoulders. And then the Walkman comes out, which makes it more portable and it's accessible and people can carry them and they become more affordable. And then the cassette tape thrives and then it goes on and on and on and it changes. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we know that there's a shift towards CDs. We know that the, there's even a further shift in technology that comes with home recording studios that made an artist like, 50 even, you know, easier for him to turn around instrumentals and put out his own tapes. So like the subtext of technology driving this culture, it was really, really, really an inspiring and interesting narrative for us to kind of take a step back because at the time when you're consuming things, you just want the music or at least guys like us just wanted the music. I didn't care what it was on. I didn't care where I was getting it from. It was ultimately about the music. But when you step away and you do some deep dive examination like this and you get different people's perspectives, you begin to see things from a different way. You know, and Dan hit on this earlier, like that era of the Skarsky, the Hollywood, right? Um, you know, that era is not an era that I came in. So I was almost like very honored to have like, front seat to hear this history being told to us for the first time like by no means necessary were dan and i mixtape experts coming into this book right i think it was right. such a learning curve for us to kind of be educated in that way that like those are some of the moments that still sit with me like holy shit i was on the phone with brucey b for an hour and 20 minutes like the brucey b you know so uh i still have those kind of moments when people receive the book um that that was just it's it's just great to be able to share it with the world at this point the hollywood thing is crazy too there was like one part that i thought was like super interesting it's just like he talks about how like back in the day at parties like they didn't want the dj to speak on the mic or it wasn't even like normal for like a dj to talk on the mic and then that like emerges like a big thing and again that becomes like a you know polarizing topic you know, through mixtapes, like, do you want mixtapes where the DJ's talking? Do you want your guy, like, screaming over, like, the new songs? Or do you not? You know, some people, like me, I err on the side of, like, I like that. I, I want the DJ's personality. Like, that makes it more exciting. But he even talked about, like, in the clubs, how they would have a rule, like, the DJ's couldn't talk on the mic. Like, we're dating that. We're going that far back into the history of, like, the emergence of just the DJ as, like, a personality that's like talking on the mic at clubs and then on tapes like he's at the forefront of all that and the beginning of all that really breaks that down so like i, I love i love the although that early section of the book is so fascinating i think ev and i both share that fascination with that section of the book because we got such that that rich rich history that we just didn't grow up in hey yo steve you got a level Artie, you ready to go off so check it out, right about now, Dr. Dre is on the wheels and I'm about to cold tear shit up. Y'all heard, take it from the top. 
Speaking of personalities, when you trace what was happening on the West Coast with the Rhodium mixtapes and how those tapes created such a buzz on a street to the point of being known by most fans as, I guess, this holy grail of mixtapes on the West Coast. Often you would hear East Coast artists on those tapes. Do you think that coastal differences have always been overblown? I don't know. To be honest, I don't even really know that much about those tapes. I mean, I think we, when we went into like trying to make this book, there was a moment where we thought, hey, we could go broader with this book and talk about like mixtape history and all the stories and get to the L.A. story and the Houston story and the Philly story and all that stuff. And we decided to really focus in on New York because that was like really near and dear to our hearts. Um, both because of the DJs and even the artists that came up during that time. So I'm not even well-versed enough, I think, to speak on that. Um, that That's a little blind spot for me. But as a music fan and a hip-hop fan growing up in New York, and as someone actually who was born in Oakland myself and has family from California, like I was always drawn to artists in L.A. and um, and the Bay Area. Um, and always grew up listening to them, all the snoops and all that stuff and hieroglyphics. And that was always important. And to be honest, I'd love to learn more about that era of the mixtapes from L.A. and that scene. I, I don't know that much about it, to, for real. I'd love I to mean, learn more. I, I could jump in here, Dan, if you don't mind. Like, I think yeah. what that speaks to is the fact that hip hop always seems to find its place. You know, whether it's the Rhodium swap meets in L.A. or whether it's the corners of Canal Street, like the necessity of invention is so hip hop at its core. Right. Like the idea of like, oh, we want to break dance on the street. Right. Let's go take some linoleum because we can't slide on the cardboard like the, in, the necessity of invention from hip hop or aerosol cans. And the fact that they found ways to swap out the tips of spray paint to get finer lines, you know, like. The necessity of invention speaks, whether it's West Coast or whether it's East Coast. I don't think it matters because hip hop always found its place and as equal parts as there was East Coast music on rhodium swap meet tapes. Right. There was guys like SNS breaking Snoop records and Afro puffs and all sorts of stuff here on the East Coast because folks travel back and forth. And the community of hip hop was so small at the time that the intensity of the energy around it. You didn't judge, oh, that's that's dirty South music. That's mumble rap. Like there weren't these kind of like, this shit was just rap back then. You know what I mean? Like I think like yeah. journalism and hindsight has given us this categorical way to talk about hip hop because it makes sense to put it in order. But at the time, that shit was just music. It was hip hop. It was like, it didn't matter who it was. It was almost like welcoming because it gave you a different perspective. Like shit, like I learned more about science and sociology from Wu-Tang albums than I did sitting in in, in, <laughs> in high school. You know what I mean? Like, and I think like at that time, that's what it was. So um, I'm glad that you referenced that this kind of phenomenon was happening outside of New York City. And Dan said this too, was like, after seeing the mixtape movie documentary, which is phenomenal, by the way, Tony Touch and Omar and those guys that were involved in it, we took a more refined approach in how we were going to document this because it just seemed like mixtapes globally was a large subject matter to tackle in a short amount of pages. And also do feel pretty strongly as we trace the lineage, it's like, this is where it started. You know, this is where that idea of the DJ started. There's no denying that. This is where the idea of the hip hop club started. This is the idea of recording live tapes started. So we felt like dropping the needle in New York City 
was the way to go. And what a time to drop this book. What a year to drop this book. 50 years of hip hop, of course. Can you maybe talk a bit about the criteria behind curating which ones would be included in this book? Did you have, were there any points at any stages during this book where you were arguing about what should make the cut and what shouldn't make the cut? Well, shit. I mean, the book, when we handed a manuscript in, was 150,000 words. What's been printed is probably 70 to 80,000 words to give you an idea of how difficult that challenge that was. Uh, you know, the first thing that we had to tackle is like, how do we tell the story? You know, I think if it was our publisher's decision, we would have given them a really beautiful looking, high glossy, visually driven book about mixtape artwork. But that's it, just about the artwork. That's what they would have been satisfied with. For Dan and I, we understand the assignment. Like we understood how deeply important telling the history of this is. So the first attempt is like, how do we create a narrative around this? How do we tell the story? And I think we just started with like setting up some clear Roman numerals. Like let's just Roman numeralize like these different eras of mixtapes and then build them out. And once we had those eras kind of collected, we looked at to like, who were the people in that those eras that really represented what that that sound meant or that time frame meant. And if you look through the book or when you look through the book, you'll notice that each chapter is represented by a stack of tapes. And each one of those stack of tapes was specifically curated to represent the subject matters inside that chapter. Like, I don't want that to be lost on people because the amount of conversations that Dan and I had and the amount of times that we debated one versus the other. And then there's a second part of that because it's hard to find the tapes themselves. Like I could speak for Dan and I who share a pretty wealth of a pretty massive collection of cassette tapes, but they're not every single cassette tape, you know? And some of those early cassette tapes like really weren't created to be visually presented. You know, they might've come into like a line cassette tape and it might say, you know, Funkmaster Flex, September 2nd, 1994 on the spine. And it's not really kind of something visually pleasing or has a cover. So it was equal balance of making sure the ones that represented the history and the culture, and then those that also had were visually appealing. I, I think, you know, for me, like, there was definitely like a personal approach to it too. Like there were just things that I remember that were like landmark moments in my own life. And I remember making a huge impact just in New York, like through the nineties, I was like, we got to have the best of Biggie. We got to have, you know, all the clue tapes. We got to have the doo-ops. We got to go find the original covers of the doo-ops, which was like, you know, a challenge. Um, you know, we got to have all the Tony touch tapes, Greenland, like Ron G, like Kid Capri. Like there were just things that like we, grew up on and that we knew were so impactful and that we remembered and that were favorites and were just a part of the history that we came up in that were just almost like let those were like the layups but then like i've said you know as you dive deeper into like the structure of the book and like the different sections and who were the guys who were crushing it with the blends who were the guys who were the turntablists you know who, you know wh who were the you know the the mixtape cover artists that like were the most impactful or the most prolific, like you got to talk to them. And, 
you know, the more you talk to people and you talk to store owners, you know, things get uncovered and all of a sudden there's, oh, you got to talk to this guy or, oh, you, you definitely got to include this or whatever. And, you know, you start listening to stuff that maybe you never heard before and you're like, oh, we got to get this. Or you see a cover of something that maybe you never saw. So like Ev said, you know, we're fans. We're not like experts or like insane maniac mixtape collectors when we started this book. Um, so a lot of it was discovery for us. Um, so there was like a personalized approach to it all too, along with the, what Ev, the way Ev broke it down also. One of the most illuminating renovations in this book is that Brucey e. B didn't become the world famous Brucey e. B until he went to London for Fresh Fest. Are you aware of what kind of frequency his tapes traveled outside of Harlem in New York? Um, no, I wasn't. Not, tell I us. Mean, Brucey e. <laughs> is an, an elusive character and there's, you know, and, and yeah, I would love to hear that because we share one perspective and it's ours and the subject matters we talk to. But the cool thing about Brucey e. Bean, I don't mean to take the moment away, but the one thing of somebody was like, yo, what was the most shocking thing was when I talked to Brucey e. and I asked him about the fidelity of his microphone. And I knew that there's a certain sound that Brucey e. B has when you, he talks on the mic, it's a, tinny echoey kind of like sound which again later becomes one of the things or characteristics that clue does you know clue 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 it has that like extended right. echo in it yeah. so when i ask bruce and i say you know like when you did that was there intention because you wanted to kind of trademark your own sound from other djs who may have like a crisp clean sound and this was going to become the brucey b trademark sound and he said to me, no, I just had a broken microphone. And my mind was blown. <laughs> my mind was blown that this was just another one of those happy accidents that happens that I think for most people think about that sound of Brucey e. B, whether it's from a paid in full soundtrack that comes many years later or listening to the tapes live at the rooftop or listening to tapes later. Like that's known to be his calling card. Um but I love that you brought up this fact that he was named a world famous Brucey e. B by coming to Fresh Fest. Yeah, yeah we go yeah, from new to old, from old, old to new. It's the world famous Brucey B. We don't go. I'm asking one question. question. Here we go. Here we go. You see do you want to see it, Goddamn? Do you really want to see it, Goddamn? We in the streets, nigga. You want to see it? Ask. I'm telling you, you want to see it. The rap is gonna do it for you. Take me back to that moment you guys discovered Kid Capri for the first time. What was it about a Capri mixtape that worked for you and still works for you today? I, I, before I get into my own personal story, I want to say that everybody we spoke to, some of the difficulties in conducting were the, the interviews 
were to get individuals to stop talking about Kid Capri. Like it right. was great to hear them pay homage. It was great to hear how revered he is within the music, DJ, mixtape culture. But it was it was a certainly difficult to get people to talk about themselves. So if that's a testament to again how important and impactful he was. My personal experience doesn't start at Kid Capri tapes, but my experience with Kid Capri starts from him DJing, and it was through Deaf Comedy Jam. And my specific memory of that was a comedian who was known for doing, and I'm going to drop a name, Mike Winslow was a guy from a movie called Police Academy who would do all these like sound effects with his mouth. And the comedian was also able to do that. And him and Capri battled back and forth. He would do like scratching and beatboxing. And then Capri would start cutting on the turntables back. And it was like a back and forth thing. And I remember thinking like, this is the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. And I was like, from that moment on, Kid Capri was in my lexicon. I, I found out about the Kid Capri Apollo album. Later on, it's like that by Kid Capri. And the volume of mixtapes prior to this book is short range. It's 10-9 Stephanie Millsby. It's old school one. I knew of the James Brown thing. I don't think I was a student of them. But since doing the book to uncover how deep the mixtape catalog of Capri's are, these kind of like date-driven titles Right before there were track lists, before there was cover art, it was just basically four six eighty nine. You know what I'm saying? Like June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight. Those types of things, or nineteen whatever it was. Um, I I still I I think there's a beautiful thing because I'm still discovering new and more Kid Capri mixes as an adult than I did kind of as a kid. Dan, share yours, man. I don't know that we ever talked about specific stuff like this. So I love hearing yeah. your perspective. I can't believe you remember that like moment from Deaf Comedy Jam. That's crazy. I mean, I remember it from Deaf Comedy Jam too, and I remember it from Police Academy. It's so funny. I, that's a, a great memory. I mean, my favorite thing that I discovered from doing the book, like diving deeper into the Kid Capri archives, is I'm I'm born on May 25th. That's my birthday, and he has a tape 52591, and I was like, oh yo, he has a tape, uh, you know, um, that's dated my birthday that's crazy um, amazing and like i just like you know it became quickly like one of my favorite tapes because it's in such a sweet spot like 1991 like um you know i was probably 13 years old i guess that was like my 13th birthday so just like the music that's on that tape just connects so much with like my middle school era of uh of my life um but I was like, yo, this is sick, man. He has a take from my birthday, 525-91. But yeah, like Ev said, I mean, everyone just couldn't stop praising Kid Capri. I mean, I think Clark Kent's like whole interview was just about the impact that Kid Capri and Brucey B made, you know, and, and it was amazing for everyone to show him love, Buck Wild, all these dudes, you know, they're all just like, you know, pay homage, man. We, we're all here because of him, you know, so... Like, you know, Kid Capri, again, he was just like a little, those tapes were like a little before our time. So like, we really got to dive in. Like, like Ev said, the Stephanie Mills, all that stuff, it's all famous and you know it, but really having a chance to listen to hit like live at the building tapes and things like that, that I didn't really know about was like a, like an incredible part of the process of making this book. 
Love so, that. And and I'll I'll say one kick of fruit. Like we just did Shady Forty Five. Rap is out of control. Um, show uh, with um, Eclipse and Rez, and uh, Kid Capri was up there uh, with his group, the Hoodies. It was kind of like a like a dope moment for us because the Hoodies grew up in Ev's hometown, and um, you know to to meet Kid Capri in person after doing the book was amazing. And you know he like during during kind of like uh, music breaks, he was like flipping through the book and. At one point, he just leaned over to me and was just like, yo, the book is dope. You know, just to, like, hear him say that to us and, like, you know, show love like that. And to have him even just be willing to be interviewed for the book and be a part of it was just so amazing. So very thankful for that. And uh, shout out to him, man, the legend. One of the things Capri talks about is making tapes for both the street as well as commercializing them in a way to reach anybody. Can you talk about... You've talked about the track lists a couple of moments ago, but can you talk about the inclusion of track lists and barcodes and how they stopped mixtapes from being underground, which was funnily enough also the thing that stopped, you know, Kid Capri going in a direction that he was back then. It changes the trajectory of his career, of his career in major ways, doesn't it? Well, I mean, that's the reason why he gets out of the game, which I thought was like a really interesting like tidbit. He's like, yo... You start playing track lists on the tape this becomes a whole other thing now like the fact that we're playing music that's unauthorized is front and center literally on the cover of the product you know whereas before it was just you know yeah maybe it's our name and a stamp or a date or whatever it is but like we're not actually like advertising the artists and the songs you know so he was like i'm out of here once it was that he's like i'm out of here i'm on the bigger and better things but you're right. I mean, that also helps the mixtape game explode and become this whole thing that's like, you know, for people who are trying to sell the tapes, it's just so much easier to sell them when you see exactly what's on the tape rather than having to just be like, hey, trust me, or having the name of the DJ sell it. Now you're like going in there and if you like Biggie or you like P-Rock and Seal Smooth and you go into the store and you're flipping through the binder and you're like, oh, I never heard that song before. Like, I'm going to cop that. You might not even know who the DJ is and all of a sudden you've just, you know, become, you just bought a tape just off the strength of the artist itself. So, I mean, I think for guys like us who were like really into exclusives, that may have led us to, you know, DJs that we didn't know, you know, maybe we knew about SNS and Craig G and Clue, but all of a sudden we're going to buy like a technician tape or something like that because it has a song on it that we never heard just simply because we're like, yeah, we never heard that song. Let's get that. And then all of a sudden you're a fan of technician or whatever it is. <clears throat> so, I mean, I think it made a huge impact. Um, you know, Phil from Harlem Music Hut talked a lot about like being at the forefront of that. Um, G-Bill the Pro talked a lot about being at the forefront of that. I mean, it's right. super game, super game changer. Um, and you can see how some of the older school guys kind of like were scared away by it. And and the ones that embraced it, you know, the clues, et cetera, like went on to really do big things in the mixtape game. Yeah. The only point I want to add, and it's a caveat that we did not speak to every single mixtape DJ that ever made a mixtape or every single store owner that ever sold a mixtape. But there was an interesting fact that the track list invent, the invention of the track list came mostly from the people selling the tapes than the DJs themselves. And again, think about it is what Dan says that it was a marketing tactic for them to expand their audience beyond, you know, the local DJ in Harlem who people may not know versus the artists themselves that appear on the tape 
And man, what what a watershed moment that was for the economics of it. And it's unfortunate, although I totally wholeheartedly understand and appreciate Capri's kind of approach saying, look, it became less about the DJ than it became about more about the artists themselves. But it really probably is a key to the expansion of how tapes traveled and tapes were consumed and tapes were bought and sold and the dynamics begin to shift and change. And, you know, we hear later about how people approach the idea of like, all right, now that these track listings are about, how can we evolve it from just being song after song after song, you know, now we get the invention of freestyles that start off tapes or tapes just full of freestyles, but yeah, you know, um, you know, the, the, the kind of retailization, if that's even a work or the capitalism of mixtapes, like certainly the gift and the curse of it all, you know, and, uh, mm. you know, even further down the line when it becomes the CD era, you know, and the cost of reproduction doesn't change the fidelity of the audio and the cost of it becomes lower, you know, the marketplace begins to absorb more product, which drives the demand down or and the cost down and I mean, there's so many factors that are outside of, of, of any industry would probably appeal to it. Going back to something you mentioned a couple of seconds ago, Dan, you were talking about Jibo the Pro from Latin Rascals, of course, and Artibi in the book, where he mentions people laughing at them for putting track lists on their tapes because it was supposed to be such a street thing back then. What are your thoughts on this evolution we're talking about from underground to mainstream? What are some of your favorite covers? I, to be honest, like my favorite covers, like the ones that like I'm most drawn to are not the ones with artwork on them, but are literally just the ones with track lists on them. Because like I look at those, you know, like even the G-Bro, the pro tape or whatever, but like those like first SNS tapes that I have and you see and you just like look at the track list and you're just like, wow, come clean. How many MCs? you know, whatever it is, you just see this list of just like that are now classic songs that at the time when you saw the tape, no one had heard them before and they were brand new. Like in some cases you had never even heard of OC or something like that until that tape. And now you think back like, wow, like not only like was this tape dope back then, but if you listen to it now, you're like literally just playing all classics. Like when you read them, you're like, yo, look at this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. These are all literally like considered timeless classic rap singles all on one tape, you know? Yeah. It's just like kind of mind blowing. So I am like really attracted to the visuals of those and like finding those was, you know, in some cases harder than some of the other ones that have been digitized a little more that are a little later on. Those are some of my favorites, but um, there are a couple um, animated ones that I love. We blew it up really big. Tony Touch Bubbling. We made that like a full page. That one is so dope. It's like on the bathtub. Um, so fire. And um trying to think of a couple other favorites. Oh, you know what I love? Just the title is great. Chubby Chubb. Um, Chubito's Way. He flipped the Carlito's <laughs> Way cover and called it Chubito's Way. That was one of my favorites too, um, but yeah, like overall, I'm I'm drawn to the tracklist era myself, and it's just because of that, like being able to read those and be like, oh, yo, he had this way before. Look at that, like they won't even have the song titles right, you know what I mean? They won't even 
they won't even call it, you know, they'll call it fuck the world and not the what, you know what I mean? Or, um, right. you know, um, I forget what they called, what Ron G calls juicy. Um, it's all good. You know what I mean? Like they didn't even know the title of the song yet. That's how early they had it, you know, like stuff like that is the, that's the stuff I love. You know, there was a thought at, at one point about adding a little bit of ego trip book of rap lists into this a little bit more than we did. Right, Dan? And one of the lists that yeah. we had was like mislabeled mixtape tracks that yeah. were like titled the wrong thing and then become something completely different. And I, you nailed yeah. it. Two great ones. The What and Juicy, yeah. which are like yeah. totally misrepresented. But then there's also the one, wasn't there a Tupac one? Uh, MV talks about it. Um, uh, yeah. I hit him up. I think it. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, that was another one too. Yeah. There's there I don't was a think few. Hit him up is called hit hit him up on the on the the mixtape or something. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? I forget what it was called, but it's on that envy tape, the um the one the if I rule the world and, and right. uh, what's his name talks about the story of like just playing it on repeat um in Queens, like just selling it over and over, like he was the one they had that song first. Um yeah, there's a Google Doc somewhere with like a, a half-baked list of of song titles, uh, you know, that were on mixtapes that were incorrectly named uh, because they were so new and exclusive when the DJs had them. It's probably like seven of them. Maybe we didn't get to 10. Incredible. Incredible. What are your recollections of making tapes and sharing your own mixtapes of radio shows back then? What did they look like and what did they sound like? I was, uh, I was a pause king master. You know, and for me, again, I keep coming back to the fact that I like did not live in New York City. So I guess I feel like my work ethic to consume hip hop culture was the barrier of entry was so much higher. So like specifically around Stretch and Bobito, KCR, um, I which was on which was on Columbia radio station, which was like not a well-traveled radio station. I found out one night that if I unplug the cable wire that went into the back of my television and I spliced it to fit into the back of my receiver and plugged it into the antenna I got a crystal clear version of WKCR and my life changed like the fact that I was able to like record and listen and we just had this conversation with Riggs Morales um, now of Def Jam, formerly of Atlantic Records, formerly of the Source magazine. And we were both, kind, we all three of us were kind of reminiscing about if you had an, a 90-minute tape or if you were even fortunate enough to have 120-minute tapes, right? Like where you had right. 60 minutes on each side, you had to like perfectly time pressing pause and record or record it, you know, record right before you fell asleep to make yeah. sure that you got that extra 60 minutes. And Riggs told the story about, I think it was Farrell Monch, right? And he woke well, up like he woke street smart, yeah. street smarts and Farrell Monch, and it like woke yeah. him up out of sleep. And he was like, "What the fuck is this?" Like, yeah. I totally like got full body chills because I remember those kind of moments of waking up like out of a sleep and hearing maybe like the middle of a freestyle from somebody who was at WKCR or a joint that you never heard and. You know, the moments of taking those full tapes, this is what I remember. Taking the full tapes and then cutting the songs you liked out of them onto another tape, right? Because mm -hmm. again, like you had two kind of tapes. You had to get all of it. 
but then you had to like curate it down to the joints that you wanted. And maybe you got a joint from another radio show that you wanted to have. So like the techniques of being like a cassette tape DJ. And then like, obviously anybody who comes from an era knows what it was like to have scotch tape and a pencil and a little tiny screwdriver set. Because if you had a tape and the tape got caught in it or a pop, like you were performing cassettes, cassette tape surgery where you're trying to tape it together and screw it back in. Um, there are some of those tapes that unfortunately I was not, I was careless and didn't label them. Like always the tapes that I made had names. I always named them extra butter, you know, like I always tried to like, buy, like salad dressing. Why we call it salad dressing? Because I'm always on top, baby. Like I always had a meaning <laughs> or a name for why I would call it something. But those original, let's call them master tapes. Like I didn't label them shits. I would tape over them. Um, so making your own tape and coming to school with a cassette tape and being able to share it, uh, you know, I have a very, very, very fond memory of putting a tape into the locker rooms at practice after high school and people going crazy. I, I can't remember what tape it was or what the song was, but like knowing the power that music had, that was like that first moment where like you could appreciate on an individual level how important that new exclusive was to you. But when you, oh, you know what it was? It was the Flavor In Your Ear remix. That was the song, <laughs> oh. which was huge. And I remember playing that bad boy with the clinking, like yeah. people went ape shit. People went ape shit. So then you realize like the power that music has over everybody. But man, those cassette tapes, they became part of the identity. You know, they became part of like the DNA. And like, I was extremely prideful on having and sharing exclusives. Sorry, Dan, I, I grabbed the mic. I know you got great nah. stories too, Doug. Nah, I mean, that was dope. And the rig story was crazy. I think he called it going fishing or something like that, where you would like press record before you went to sleep and then wake up to see what you caught. And the story all revolved around that metal thing song and the Pharaoh verse and literally him going fishing just to finish that story was what led to Pharaoh getting the rhyme of the month in the source. And he came in and was like, yo, look what I got when I went fishing last night and recorded when I went to sleep this song, you know, we got it and it became the rhyme of the month and it was from him catching it. Um, and then I had my own story that I used to do the same thing. My memory was, um, I went fishing myself. I didn't call it that, but I, uh, the business with De La Soul and Common, I remember when they first played that, I think it was, um, mayhem and more and more though. Um, and just like I had a job, I used to clean pools on the weekends. Um, and we'd be up super early and we'd be in the back of this like crusty van. It was crazy. We'd get dropped off at some random house. We'd go clean the pool. It was like a funny, like early, one of my first jobs. And I remember having the Walkman and like having the tape that I'd recorded from whenever that was the night or the night before. And like hearing that song, just playing it on repeat that whole day. Um, and yeah, so, so many songs. Uh, there was another one that I was thinking of too from those days. Uh, Who's the champion? It's, uh, it's Rizzer and Ghostface. It was like on the Great White Hype soundtrack. It was another one. You would have never heard it, you know, if you didn't like listen to those radio shows. Um, Escobar season begins freestyle. Like those are like, I have specific memories of like hearing songs for the first time from recording them myself and like just trying to catch those late night shows and 
you know, a lot of them was crazy. You, you tried to catch them, you had school the next day or whatever it was. So it wasn't easy. You know, there was dedication. Ev was super dedicated, you know, yeah. trying to catch the signal from far away. Uh, but it's funny how you remember like Flavor in Your Remix or whatever, like these songs that are just so timeless um, and are such like an important part of like rap history and just our classics now. Like this is like the first time anyone heard them ever you know um, so that was like the excitement of it all and that's the reason why we went through such great efforts to try to record the shows because we knew something magical was going to come out of it funk master flex night that's when the real fun begins funk master flex night yeah hard to get a ticket hard to get a ticket hard to get a ticket for funk yeah. master flex night funk Master Flex, Master Flex, Master Flex. I have the 1FM rap show live from New York City. Yeah, boy. With my man Funkmaster Flex here. That's right. Hot 97 for your ghetto style tonight. That's right, boy. I'm live from New York. Aight. Vibes are just running. Yeah, man. Everything's good in the studio. It's good, good things. Oh, no question. So it's been working nice on the tables there. So hit us off with a bit of Lost Boys got it started. Yeah, I'm feeling that whole thing. Lost Boys, it's a little math, a little everything. Everything is everything, you know what I'm saying? My man Tim Westwood, ghetto style, New York City style, Hot 97 style. One FM rap show in full effect. You know we do it once a month for you. Hey, what's up, man? We got mad celebs in the house. That's right, pure people passing through the session. I hope we get old DB up in the place. Yeah. Method Man and Redman up in the place. Nervous. My man Ace is on the way down. Trying to touch Smith and Wesson. Oh, they said they're going to come down. So it's going to be a nice hope, session, you know I what I'm saying? That, I hope everybody shows up, man. Yeah, me too, Don't man. get nervous on us. You know what I'm saying? I hope Madeline comes and flips people something as well. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I saw him in the other room. I saw Madeline. He's here, he's here, too. Aye, then it's all good tonight, so you're just going to rock the tables and get a nice little session going. I'm trying to tell you, Funkmaster Flex on the one and two ghetto style book where New York City style. Aye? <laughs> all right, rock it, Flex. I remember Flex, of course. Like, I remember Flex on the radio. I remember going to the Palladium to see the Fugees in Cypress Hill, I think. And Flex was DJing. It was my first time being in the building, like, live, hearing him DJ live and him just killing it. Just being like, yo, this dude is literally the best. Um, the rap exchange stuff, that was some other... Um, step one, I think, again, like, was a guy who had a a bunch of that stuff recorded um i don't remember that specifically um the stuff that i remember from hot 97 was more like the future flavor stuff which we explore in the book um and just flex being on the radio um and just having his like mix show um and i remember the morning show always like as lover and those guys but i don't i don't remember that much about the graphic scene i mean i've heard about it a lot and i've learned about westwood over the years of course he's such a character and like was in the mix um but yeah now flex flex was super important and then like later in the cd cd era the flex tapes were like a big part of my life um the big truck series and all that stuff he would have like the crazy jadakus freestyles and he would have exclusives and things like that um but like I was never like someone who was in the tunnel. We learned a lot about the tunnel tapes too. Like I listened to a bunch of tunnel tapes that I'd never heard before doing this, but um, you know, Flex Flex is the man. Like he's just like, if you grew up in New York, like you have to like pay homage, you know? And uh, you know, we tried to get him for the book. He, he was he was tough to get, um, I will say, um, but we made sure his story was told for sure. And thanks to Cypher Sounds who was so close to him. 
during that era for like being able to share a lot of the stories behind the making of um you know his his retail mixtapes that he made you know the 60 minutes of funk and all that stuff and sharing tunnel memories and things like that so thankfully we were able to tell those stories in the book I remember went back in my not right days. Like when I first kind of got cool with Step One, Step One is by the way, the guy behind Only Built for Z Share Links. Like if you're on the internet and like you're looking for old mixtapes and stuff like that, he's a guy who's just been digitizing and has great taste and curation skills. He did a list of like, I think it was like Capital One radio freestyles. And I think we did a Tim Westwood freestyle list too. He had a bunch of oh, stuff wow. recorded that I had never heard before. I got to go back. I wish not right. Archives are still up. Um, but he had crazy freestyles of like Wu-Tang and De La, all those crazy people. Um, and yeah, he schooled me on a lot of that stuff that I, that I missed. Um, but yeah, man. You know, you know the, the connection pre, between... The world, in a pre-internet world, I don't think I knew Tim Westwood existed, unfortunately. Like, yeah. wasn't super tapped into hip-hop at a global scale. Um, I, 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 I knew the Flex Westwood connection from doing No Sleep, the previous book about flyers, because I knew Flex as a radio DJ. I knew Flex as a guy who made mixtapes. I don't think I understood. And of course, I knew Flex from the tunnel. But I don't know that I understood really what a well-rounded, deep-rooted kind of figure Flex was until I started to do that book and really see the amount of club flyers and different places that he was which gave me a really good kind of like lens to look through mixtapes. Like we have, I think we have like, Dan, don't we have Biz Markie and Funk Flex at the Supper Club? Like there's a crazy tape or maybe it's Biz Markie at the Supper Club. I don't know. But like the deep cuts of mixtapes is what was the most fascinating to me because I understood the bold underlying headline name of a DJ but getting into the deep crevices of like, yo, this DJ was with that DJ back then, like, whoa, kind of moment. Speaking of DJs, where do you think turntablism sits within mixtape culture? And how would you describe the distinction between turntablists and traditional mixtape DJs in terms of both pushing that format of mixtapes forward? I, I knew that there had to be some representation of turntablism DJs when discussing New York City mixtapes. I think from mixtapes period underlined, it gets even deeper as we start to look at places like Miami and the impact of a guy like DJ Craze collaborating with A-Track, or we look at the Beat Junkies, or we look at any of the invisible scratch pickles, you know, like I think those pockets may be bigger than they were in New York, but man, if there's one crew when you're talking about turntablism DJs in New York City, 
it's got to be the executioners, you know, guys like Rob Swift and, you know, rest in peace, Rock Raider. And like those tapes took the idea of skill. It took blends beyond blends because it wasn't just blends, you know, like for me personally, the introduction to samples and breakbeats started starts for me with turntablism tapes. Like the idea that somebody was going to just juggle back the original sample of something else that became a hip hop song that I knew, like that begins for me to start to trace the lineage of like, oh damn, like there, there there's an original to that. And and like, I, I, I will tell you today in my life, like I listen to more of that original soul sample based music than I do contemporary rap of what's out there because there's a deeper connection for it for me. Um, and when doing this book, I knew we had to include that aspect. And then it begins to, there are other DJs that begin to blend the lines. Like, let's talk about a guy like Spinbad, rest in peace, right? Who kind of like sits at the intersection of like highly skilled technical DJ, but yet understands how to use the instruments as the turntables to make kind of like a progressive and fluid narrative of a mixtape. Like I think about Rock the Caspar, which is the 80s mixtape, as kind of for me being like up in the pantheon of great mixtapes ever. Like the format of it, the skills put into it, the addition of actual scratching to make tempos and beats and the bringing back of samples to recreate something more modern. Um, like it hits all of those sweet spots. But I think about a conversation that we had with Cypher Sounds, who Cypher was an employee at Fat Beats in New York City, and talking that they sold highly technical turntablism tapes and recordings of Stretch and Bobito. And when folks came in looking more for those kind of like exclusive street tapes, a la DJ Clue or a la DJ Envy or a la Funkmaster Flex, mm. there kind of was like a clowning going on you know what i mean because there was this clearly at the time there was such a split between what was underground and what was mainstream and i know for myself who probably leaned a little bit more underground because everybody went through their phase in the underground like you weren't fucking with those kind of artists that crossed over onto mtv trl or and you know the the places where hip-hop began to commercialize itself so you know I probably have gone to my share of executioner shows, my my fair share of studying liner notes to see which DJ is doing the scratching. Like, oh, wow, that was like, that was Rock Raider on the Common album or like, you know, like those types of things. And like, it all tied together for me. This is a really interesting part in the book where Evo D's talking about the, I believe it's who got the props and how, it was mixtapes that end up breaking a single versus radio. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah, that was dope. I, I love I love talking to Evil D, man. Like I was such a black moonhead. Um, and to like hear like the the beginning stories of all that and how it all connected together. Yeah, I think the story was that like um who got the who got the props, like they weren't playing it on the radio or he you know, he was, they were managed early on by, was it Chuck Chillout, Ed? Yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah, they were managed by Chuck Chillout. They had a falling out or something like that. And maybe it was kind of like, there was like a bad signal sent to all the radio DJs, like, yo, don't play these dudes or something like that. And then, um, 
I forget exactly what happened, but I think they just went to the mixtape DJs and, and it was actually the mixtape DJs that made the song blow up. Um, and eventually like, you know, people were just like, I'm playing this. I don't care. This shit is hot. Um, but he, he talks about like how important it was for, you know, for a song to break on mixtapes and to have a presence on mixtapes, how like, you know, even if the radio wasn't playing it or it would influence radio DJs to play it if your song was popping on mixtapes. So that's kind of part of the the early Black Moon story. Um, and uh, yeah, Evil D is the ill do because, you know, you think he was just like parallel pathing this whole time. I mean, we have this producer section, which I think was kind of like a little towards like the latter half of us making the book. We were like, wow, you know what? There's like this group of producers that like have these mixtape beginnings or they always were making mixtapes. Then they, you know, got into production. Like, you know, we had access to them and we started talking and we were like, we need to make a whole chapter on these guys, um, which was really cool. Um, the interesting thing I think that separates Evil D from some of the other guys, like maybe an EZLP who used it as an entrance point into um, becoming a producer or even Lord Finesse who was making mixtapes, but then maybe got more into production and rapping was like evil D really parallel path that like he would continue to make mixtape after mixtape after mixtape. he was super prolific with the mixtapes and still like you know this one half of the beat miners was like one of the biggest you know underground production duos in hip-hop at the time plus black moon which was like you know one of the biggest artists coming out of new york groups you know at the time too um, talking about being on the road with Black Moon selling mixtapes and things like that. So I always thought that was like an ill story of like his like mixtape career, you know, like he was like a part of Black Moon. He was a part of this production duo that was like behind, you know, Helter Skelter and Smith and Wesson and all this stuff. And yet he was still pumping out fire tapes all the time. Um, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great morsel of, uh, of um, uh, from the book that you brought up about, how they really had to kind of like, you know, break their song on on mixtapes because the radio wasn't fucking with them for whatever political reasons. Can you remember, if you were to take me back, can you remember the first mixtape you copped off the strength of a specific song rather than the skills of a DJ and the credibility of a mixtape? Specific song. Hmm. That's a tough one, man. I think, was it that dude Technician or DJ Rhythm? Someone had Understand Not, the Nas song Understanding, um, really early. It was like a, it was like a pretty whack version of it. Like it wasn't super clear. In fact, SNS tells a story and we included on the mixtape that we made, the snippet where SNS talks about like being the first one to have like, the 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 crystal clear like not like cdq ish version of understanding even though like it had circulated a little bit but i remember copping the tape by i think it was either dj rhythm or technician to get understanding um because i had heard it somewhere or maybe i just was like oh that's a new nas um and I think I copped that tape. And then I, one of those guys, they, both of those guys were DJs that I really liked. I think it, I think that's what it was. But I think Nas Understanding was like a song that I went, went, went outside of like my normal DJs that I would buy tapes of to, yeah. to get. Um, I think so. Um, but I think eventually it really just became like, 
you knew the guy, like you knew that like if you got an SNS tape or a clue tape, like for me, those were the guys that were always gonna have the new shit. Always, always, always. And it was pretty steady to the point where like you could rely on them. Think though, there's a, that's my Nas understanding story. By the way, I you know, I don't know how young your listeners are, or whatever, or people do even does everyone know Nas understanding, but that's one of my favorite Nas songs of all time. Produced by a large professor. That's right. What about yourself, Ev? I mean, it it feels later in life, but I'm 16 years old in 1994. I think that math lines up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I remember searching for J. Ruther Damager Come Clean. Like, I remember, like, seeking that out because I had heard it somewhere on a radio tape or somewhere maybe it was a video of it. And again, this notion that a video came out before a song back then is all skewed because there's not really, you just listen to shit wherever you could, you know, like I didn't know that there had already been on the radio if I'm only watching it on MTV, but I remember that song specifically. And I don't know what tape it was on or what the DJ was, but what I remember most about it is there was a jerky boys. And if anybody doesn't know who the jerky (laughs) boys were, those wow. guys did prank phone calls and whoever the DJ was had the jerky boys sample or the, or a snippet of one of their prank phone calls before the come clean. And it was like my two worlds of comedy and hip hop coming crashing together in the most awesome way. Um, but yeah, that was something that I remember seeking out 93, 94, fi- seeing if I could find it on a mixtape. I feel like there was like a connection like between those worlds that like Ev's talking about. It was like, you know, you'd watch your own TV raps or video music box. You'd listen to the radio. You'd read the source, you know, and you'd see like the fat tape section, which is another thing we explore in the book. Um you know, or, you know, you read some, some, something somewhere. And like, it was always like this, like, how do I figure out how to get the recording of it? You know, and maybe it was a mix or the the radio, I think was another part of that, like, kind of like a uh, world, you know, recording the radio shows. There were all these places that were like, you know, this is where you have to seek out to stay up to date with what's hot and what's new. And they all were like kind of connected in a weird way. So again, it's like, you might see the, the one more chance remix video, you know, on Yo MTV raps or something like that and be like, yo, how can I get this song? It's not on the album and you got to go find the mixtape for it or vice versa. You know what I mean? So like it was all these like connected worlds. And I think Ev and I were just guys that were tapped into all them because we, it was so important to us to have the new shit. Having a tape let you consume the music on demand. Right. Today, we like live in this like click and play culture where it's like any song that I want to think of, I'm going to just go onto my streaming service. I'm going to search it and I'm going to press play. But like. The kind of hip hop fan I was, I couldn't wait for 4 p.m. Rap City, you know, 3.30, Yo MTV Raps just to hear the song. Like I wanted it yeah. in my possession that I could yeah. listen to it when I wanted and mixtapes were the closest way to get from where I was to where I wanted. I don't know it's if that so, makes sense. Absolutely. And it's so it's so crazy. I like what you said just resonates with me so hard. And I bet like it's the connective tissue between a lot of the people that have shown interest in this book too. Like exactly what you just broke down is exactly how I feel. And I feel like there's a huge component of the hip hop listenership from like our era 
that didn't grow up with Spotify or whatever that wanted that. I want it on demand. I want to have it. I want to have it first. I want to be able to listen to it as many times as I want. I want to be the one that puts it on to my friends. You know what I'm saying? Like we wanted that so bad. And there's so many of us that feel exactly the what Ev just said. And I think that's the reason why this book is connecting with so many people. It's because we all have that like shared instinct of as hip hop fans of being like, yo, I need the hottest, newest, flyest, illest shit. And I need it now. And I need it in my possession. And I need to be able to play it whenever I want. And I need to be able to put my people's onto it. I think also there's a lot to be said about the attention span of people today and how these kids aren't able to cultivate your patience and experience these fishing trips we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm jumping in. I can remember going to the market, the grocery store, where the magazine section was, and flipping through the source or rap pages. I more remember it from the source because the source at one point would tell you the albums that were coming out over the next couple of months. You know, be oh, wow, Inspector Deck, Uncontrolled Substance, whatever month and year. And remember, like, reverse engineer was like, I have to wait five months for that shit to come out. You know what I mean? And like feverishly like counting down the days until like, yeah, you had to wait. You had to be patient. You had to be a real practitioner of the subject matter to an order to kind of like associate with other people who are as passionate about it as you were, you know, like you had to come with your game sharp. It wasn't like this collective of information that everybody can access. Like the internet is today. You had to come and bring your skills to the battle. You know what I mean? Like you had to come prepared with knowing what the song was, what the tape was, what the video looked like, what such and such wore. Did you see the Barclays that he wore in that video? Like that was the way that you consume culture. Uh, and mixtapes was the driving force for me of consuming as much of it as possible in one shot. Like it really comes down to economics. It was like mixtape is the best value for my money. You know, I could get the yeah. most out of it. Don't make a move. <laughs> we bunch of jewels. Hands in the air. Show me your fear. Come if it ain't about chicks, bitch, killer jokes. It's all about dope, black whips, chromes, and spokes. And free shit, so my right arm can rest. Throwing your vest, nigga, still going your chest. Side of luck, stuck up, that's you. Fuck with these. Luxury niggas who pull up in threes. Wondering if it's more magic up my sleeve. Like Merlin, fucking touch my cheese. Man, listen, so many tricks, I shit a magician. Source motherfucking, no big words and shit. Fake Einstein, rap cat, nerds, and dicks. Clever lead nigga, high skill, perfect hits. Rockefeller kill team with dreams to sell a mill. Tell us ill from intro, niggas better chill. Do what I do for the love of my crew. Fuck you, 300,000 a week and they ain't got a clue. Don't make a move, uh, we want your jewels, nigga, hands in the air, right, we see your fear, come on, source motherfucking, Jigger, Rockefeller shit, new album, September, nigga, the money too right, my click too tight, what the fuck you like, we can do it tonight, I'm too real for you, niggas running around, running your lips, shit, I kill you, in my first year business, what was your relationship with DJ Clue with the mixtapes that he was dropping in his prime? Yo, Clue tapes were like the most must-have thing. It was, just, it was so clear that there was just a moment where he kind of took over and it just became, you need every Clue tape and every Clue tape is going to be crazy and we got to get it and who has it first? Where am I going to get it? My favorite Clue memory is 
spring 96, um, having my driver's license. I was a senior in high school, waking up on like a Saturday morning, probably after like going out partying or whatever, and just solo, just driving down to the Bronx by myself, going to Southern Boulevard um, to uh, Uptown Flavor, and just seeing like, what's up, what they have. And they had clues to springtime stick up. He didn't even have the cover yet. I don't know what I don't know why he didn't have the cover yet or what. I didn't get it with the cover. I just got the it was literally like a blank tape. It might have had like nothing on it, maybe a sticker. But it was it. And I can picture myself driving on Westchester Avenue in the Bronx, getting back to go to you know, on the Bronx River to go north in the morning, Saturday morning, quiet morning in the Bronx, and hearing that mob deep freestyle over um motherless child beat which was crazy and hearing can i live jay-z for the first time and that's like kind of i think was the moment for me where i was like okay jay-z is like a serious like problem and like instantly one of my like new favorite artists like you had heard him already you know he had a freestyle on the bad boy volume three like he was around you know what i mean but that like really solidified it like yo this dude is nice that's like my favorite clue memory, like riding with that tape, having it before, like probably, you know, anyone really had it around my way, at least before there was a cover, you know, just by myself going to get a tape, just scoring big time. Like, yo, we just got this and just being like, wow. And that mob deep freestyle was crazy. I think the MOBB, ACB of that song was on there. Um, that's like my favorite clue memory for sure but there's just so many so many songs you heard for the first time like on clue tapes you know the song with biggie and pudgy the fat bastard like just like joints that are just so timeless i just remember hearing on clue tapes for the first time you know forever like all the all the nature stuff you know like hearing nature for the first time the crazy freestyles with like mason cam and nori like I don't know. Clue was like, Clue was it, man. He was, he took over and he was the must have. That's all it was. There was new Clue tape came out. It didn't matter what it was. You had to have it. We're going to get so much new shit off. It was crazy. I mean, look, if there, if there is one indicator to say how massively important and respected Clue is, it's the title of our book, Do Remember, which is born out of, was born out of Clue's mixtape spot shout outs on his tapes um when i try to explain to people who are not of our culture um or maybe even younger than the, than we are at the target market and i explain what the book is it's easy for them to understand them when i use clue tapes as a reference like if that just shows you how massively like important it is it's like Clue tapes are part of the lexicon of the way that we describe an era of time, an era of music. For me, again, 95, 96, graduating high school, having my own car for the first time, like those were the tapes that resonate with me. It was Queens all day. Nas was, it was written at his ascension. And like some of those things to me, I could still like, I can... There's a Cool G rap song. I think it's four, five, six, where Clue, it must have been around the OJ Simpson verdict trial, okay. where Clue goes, OJ, OJ, that like <laughs> I could still listen to it. And I, I want that drop to be in the song at the place where it is. 
because that's what's burned into my memory of those songs was with Clue's voice shouting them out. But very similarly with that length, and I don't want to get off Clue, is like the Mr. C best of Biggie tapes or the Mr. C best of Mob Deep tapes. There are still times in my mind when I hear songs that I want C's drop to go off because that's where I remember being burned into like my core memory of hearing them. Um, you know, Clue, Clue mainstreamed the economy of mixtapes. He mm. brought that shit to everywhere. His hustle was insane. Uh, in the city, beyond the city, in the boroughs, out of state, you know, and I think his curation of the right artist at the right time is really kind of what exploded him into, you know, being one of the, maybe not the forefathers, but the godfathers of mixtapes. Strong statement, but I'll stand behind it. Yeah, and people were crediting him with being kind of the first one to really make, like, mixtapes on CDs pop, too, you know? It's like, yo, Clue was the guy who was, maybe he wasn't the first, 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 first person to ever do it, but he was the guy who made it standard, you know, and that's something that, again, a lot of people attributed back to him. Absolutely. Can't can't front on Clue. Who do you think had the best mixtape voiceovers between the mid to late 90s? Mid to late 90s. I don't know, man. I might, I might say who kid because the gunshots and all that stuff is so crazy, you know, like those, those like early who kid tapes, and then in, you know, obviously into the G unit stuff in the two thousands, but um, the the who the who kid stuff would be would be crazy. I don't know the clue, 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 to, you know, clue Minotti. Yeah. I don't know. It probably still takes the cake too. My favorite, I, my favorite, my favorite mixtape voice though is a little before that SNS. He just had even the best. Baseline, come on! Like I don't know, the SNS voice was was the one that got me the most excited always. For me, probably because I was familiarized with his voice from doing stuff with the Bounce Squad and rapping. But Duop's voice always integrated so smoothly into joints because oh. he just had that, like you know, come on, Wop, get him, kind of like set up, like you knew something. He used it at the perfect timing. His voice was perfect. Right. But again, because I was used to hearing it because he was an ill MC too. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it goes back to strategy, that keyword strategy, right? You talk about the shift to CD in the book and some of the new opportunities that came as an extension from that era. Do you have a favorite blog era mixtape that never made it to CD or any streaming services today? There's a uh, one of the Lupe Fiasco tapes I always love. I think it was the second Revenge of the Nerds two um that was like one that i loved from that era he was spitting crazy on that uh lupe the killer there was a song lupe the killer i was like obsessed with that was like a that was a real dope one for sure um that's that's my call out right there i think it was revenge of the nerds too lupe was like a guy who it was just like one of those like blog era discoveries it maybe even a little like early blog era just like yo who is this dude i hear about him i hear jay-z's executive producing his album who is this dude from chicago i was just like man this dude is nice and his mixtapes were fire i mean his first album is great definitely a, a, a like more modern day classic um i know people people love him um and i love that album too but um his mixtape stuff was the stuff that really made me a big fan uh, i'd say that that that's my pick i'm going to approach this answer in two different directions I don't know if it's technically a mixtape, but Action Bronson's Dr. Lecter 
which is not on streaming services. I don't know if that's an album or it's a mixtape. We get into these weird times. One of them that stands out to me, the other one is the Pharrell Gangster Grills, where he picked mm. all those 90s beats and just nice. tore those things up. Like to me, that's a prime blog era mixtape mixtape that's not on on streaming services. Yeah, why is Dr. Lecter? You know what's it actually is on Apple Music, but not on anything else. Um, I want it on CD. Yes. I used to tell that dude Tommy Moss who I became friendly with some somewhere along the line. And he told me he had a stack of them sitting at his crib. I'm like, what do I have to do to get you to give me one of those? I love that album. That's a great call. Do you guys ever think about how Capri continued making tapes in his career, didn't go the direction that it went? What kind of space mixtapes might have been in? Whew. I, I love being faced with these kind of... Uh, what ifs? What if moments. I, I think that... Capri would have found his way to earlier in the timeline, bring some of the models that we saw later on in mixtapes. Obviously, his ascension in other areas of his career gave him access to artists. And I think things like the original mixtape freestyle or kind of collaborative mixtape efforts probably would have happened sooner because Capri was a magnet. And again, I keep using this word revered, but he was revered and respected by so many people that if he tried to flex on some mixtape shit early and be like, yo, artist A, like, come on and come to the crib and do this freestyle, like that would have happened if he stayed in the game. And he did that because that album, Soundtrack to the Streets, is essentially like the same model. But he could have done that on the tapes if he stayed in the game way earlier. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My peoples, are you with me where you at?